This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Bottom of page 381. And this is the meaning of the statement of Sefer Yesara regarding the ten Sephora. The beginning is wet into in their end. In the scheme of the Sephora, the very beginning <coughs> signifying a level that transcends even the, the head is to be found in the culmination of the series to an even greater extent than in the head. Sephora of Chachma is variously termed the head. And the first the phrase is usually understood to mean the beginning of wisdom, but can also mean Chochma is first. Machat is the last of the Sefer, the Sefer of Keter, which transcends the Sefer of Chochma, is termed the beginning. This beginning then, which is called Keter, is wedged and is even more to be found in the end, Machat, than in the other Sefer, even Chochma. There's the first, which is the head. And then you have the end. Chachma is the head, is the first. Beginning of consciousness starts with Chachma, the creative spark. And then you have the end. It ends with Malchus, royalty, speech, words, letters. So there's a huge distance between the beginning and the end. It's like a linear line. There's the beginning and there's the end. The top and the bottom. But the Kabbalah says, it says in the book of Formation, which was written by Avram Avinu, first work of Kabbalah by Avram, says, a very deep truth and insight that the beginning, the end is wedged, is nailed into the beginning and the beginning is wedged to the, nailed into the end. What is the beginning? The beginning refers to something that even precedes the first. The first is the head. Reish is Chachma. Reish, Chachma is the head. That's where the brains are, the head. What's on top of Chachma? What's on top of the head? What goes on top of the head? Yeah. Crown. Crown. Keter. Keter is on top of the head. Above the head. So the crown is connected to the end. Last week we learned that the kingdom, leadership, is the end. The very end, most external. 
the king is, doesn't add anything to the king. You're a leader, you're not a leader, it doesn't, you don't grow an extra finger, it doesn't, the same brains you had before, you'll have after, it's not, whatever's going on internally, nothing changes. The king is head and shoulders above everyone else, as an individual. This is completely external to the king, to be a leader, to be coronated as king, to be a leader, which is completely outside of him not something he finds inside himself. It's not like his own brains and his own mind and his own heart and his own sensitivities and feelings. It's something that the people, the people choose him and crown him as their king, as their sovereign. It was completely external to the person. Just like speech is completely external to the person. You don't need speech for yourself. You're alone, you don't need speech. It doesn't add anything, it means nothing, it signifies nothing. It's ex- completely external. It begins with the person outside of you. Words and letters. Words and letters are just lifeless. They're just words and letters. They're just vehicles that contain what you put inside of it. An idea, a concept, a feeling, an emotion. But in their own right, they're just vessels ready to receive. Formless, shapeless, whatever, whatever you're just ready to receive and to convey, to communicate. Just transportation vehicles. Whatever you put inside, they're going to move along. It's completely external. And yet, comes this book of formation and tells us, comes the Kabbalah and tells us that the very end is rooted, not in the head, in the beginning. That's even greater than the head. That's why it's the king who wears the crown. That's the sign of royalty, the crown. Because it comes from the deepest place. That's why the crown is on top of the head. Because yes, it's very external. Royalty, communication. But the truth is it comes from the deepest place. the need to communicate. It's so deep-seated. A person is self-sufficient. The brain, the head is self-sufficient. I don't need anyone. I can entertain myself. I can take care of myself. Where is this need to communicate? Where does it come from? Why does the musician need an audience? Why can't the musician sit at home the window's locked, and just play. <laughs> he has music on his own. Why does he need the audience? And the bigger the musician, needs a bigger audience. Why? Money. Not just the money. Money is a reflection of how good he is, of what a great audience he has. But the greater the musician, the greater the need for the audience. The teacher, why does the teacher need students? Just a teacher can sit with his books, create intellectual breakthrough after intellectual breakthrough, entertain himself. Why does he need students? Where does this need come from? This need for relationships, where does this come from? This need for relationship is unique to human. 
Animals don't have that type of relationship. There's a deep-seated need for relationship. It's completely illogical. The brain doesn't dictate it. The brain doesn't demand it. On the contrary, the brain is self-sufficient. I don't need anyone. Why do I need a relationship? I'm self-sufficient. People are distractions. <coughs> I enjoy my own company. I like to entertain myself. <laughs> I don't need anyone. Where's the deep-seated need for relationship? To connect. To communicate. And this is what drives us. So much so that in Hebrew, man is called medaber. We're not called... In the Western dictionary, man is called rational animal. That's the highest praise of man. The highest form of man is we can imagine, we can think unlike the animals. Yet in the Torah, in the Hebrew language, what's the greatest characterization of man? Not sikhli, which is our intellect, intellectual capacity. Medaber, to speak. Well, a parrot can also speak. It's not just speaking. It's the communication. It's the need to communicate. Where does that come from? This is above the head. This comes from the crown that transcends the head. It's my ability to transcend myself. It touches on something transcendent. The end reaches so deep. Not only it reaches the beginning, it surpasses the beginning. It reaches into the crown that's above the head, that transcends the head. It expresses something that's infinite. The whole hishtal shalut, beginning with wisdom all the way from the, from the head to the, to the toe, that's linear. It's one level, diminishing to the next level, descending to the next level, to the next level. And there's a huge distance from that head to the, to the bottom of the tip of the toe. But when you say the head, when you say the beginning, you're talking about the beginning that transcends the head. You're talking about the crown that transcends the head. Because this ability to be king, this need to be king, this need to, to communicate, this is so deep-seated, it transcends the, the head. The crown op- that hovers over the head. Because it, it, it's infinite. It, it, it's an expression of something that's infinite. The fact that, yes, it is something completely external, but it reflects something so deep. It reflects that I'm not finite and I'm not limited. I'm not compartmentalized. There's something within me that's truly limitless that can really connect with something outside of myself. And that's why speech, communication, is so powerful. When you put a concept into words, it's magnified a thousandfold. It's not just... It's disproportionate. It's explosive. The, the fountains of wisdom open up. As the Talmud says, I learned a lot from my teachers, more from my colleagues, and even the most I learned from my students. Because when you have to communicate, the fountains open up and, and your, your mind is able to understand things that you would never, ever 
in a million years able to understand sitting alone and just contemplating, reflecting, meditating. That's the power of speech, the power of communication. Because it touches the crown. It touches something infinite. It touches something divine, something godly, something transcendent. So don't be fooled. It may look to be at the end and the tip and the bottom. But the truth is, it's rooted and it's wedged at the beginning. That precedes the head, the crown. That's why it's called a crown. So the crown is connected to the end, to the malchut. And as we learned last week, that's what triggers, that's why that's what triggers the, the essence. This is what triggers within the light and brings out that essential quality that the light conveys. And that's why it's the end, it's malchus, that has the capacity to create something from nothing, that triggers that essence within the light, the essence of Hashem, that novelty, that ability to create something new, that creative expression of Hashem, to create something from nothing. That can create an ego, create something that feels completely independent, disconnected. Because it's wedged and it's rooted in the beginning. Rukhetu is the mediator between the infinite, the emanator, and the finite. The emanator and the emanated, emanated, emanated beings. beings. And the lowest level of our soul <laughs> is comprised in it. Every intermediary, such as in our case, the Sefer of Keter, must incorporate at least some aspect of both the levels that it seeks to bridge. The aspect of infinite light contained in Keter is the lowest degree of Ein Sof. This level is the beginning, that level of Ein Sof that is wedged in the Sefer of Malchut. For as mentioned earlier, it is the Malchut that reveals the power of the Ein Sof to create yesh from ayin. So every intermediate has something from the higher level, something from the lower level. So keter, the higher level of keter, which is called atik, pleasure represents the infinite, and the lower level arich represents the world of emanation. So when we say that the end is rooted in the beginning in keter, we're talking about the higher level of keter. The part of Keta that represents, reflects the infinite. And Malchut is an expression of it. So even though a crown seems to be so external, I'm wearing a crown, but it's the crown that represents royalty. A king sits with a crown over his head. <laughs> There's something, it's not, it, it appears to be external, but it's not. It's something very profound. It's something that, you know, expresses royalty, expresses because it's the crown that really represents something that's transcendent and that can only be expressed in royalty, in leadership and royalty. And precisely because it appears to be so external, really it's rooted in the deepest, deepest, most transcendent place. where the king is not limited to himself, where he's able to connect with something outside of himself. Just like speech, words, letters, speech, the ability to communicate, relationships, the need to communicate.
the deep-seated need to communicate, to have relationships. That comes from the deepest place. So it transcends the self. The self is self-sufficient. But this is something of the infinite. It's not limited. And therefore you're not even limited to yourself. You can transcend yourself. So when you make contact with the outsider, when your leadership and you're a king over an outsider, over people who are separate from you, people who are lower than you, when you're communicating to someone outside of yourself, when you're putting it into words, into letters, it's rooted in the deepest, in the transcendent. And that's why it ignites something explosive, something powerful, something very profound, very, in- very intense. That is why the sphere of Kesar, meaning crown, is called Kesar Malchut, the crown of sovereignty. As stated in the introductory passage to Tikkun Zohar, which begins with Patav Eliyahu, supernal Kesar is Keter Malchut, for a crown is only for a king. I- i.e., the prime function of the sphere of Chesar is to draw down the infinite Ein Sof light contained within it into the level of Malchus. So where is that infinite light revealed? As we learned last week, it's revealed in the sphere of Malchus. When Hashem is sovereign, when Hashem creates, when Hashem creates, speaks and creates and connects with something outside of Himself, so to speak, that's the ultimate expression of Hashem's transcendent self, His infinite self. That He's so infinite and undefined that He's not even limited to being Himself, so to speak. He can create something outside of Himself. I thought last week we said that the Orin self is a reflection of the Ein self. But now we're saying that, that the the Orin Sof has this power to create? The Orin Sof, good question, the Orin Sof con- conveys that power. Only the essence of Hashem has the power to create. But being that the Orin Sof is a reflection of Hashem, so even though the Orin Sof by definition, light by definition, Enlo Sof has no ending but has a beginning, and is the exact opposite of the essence which has no beginning, but being a true reflection and being completely nullified and being a true reflection, it conveys even that quality of having no beginning. It's only as a conduit. As a conduit. It doesn't do the creation. It doesn't, well, it, it's a conduit, so it's a reflection of Hashem, so it's a conduit and it contains it. And where is it triggered? It's triggered in the end. When it goes through, when it reaches the level of Malchut, that's what triggers, that's what triggers it. Um, that's it. That's is at the highest level, though. This is right. It triggers it in, in the Oren Sof. So the Malchut contains with it the Oren Sof, because the end is wedged in the beginning, which is the crown. That's why the crown is associated with royalty, with kingship, with leadership, which is the end. And in that crown, that crown represents something that's transcendent. And in that transcendence is to be found the, that ability, Hashem, the divine ability to create. Also, Kether is called Kether Malchut because the final level of the Ein Sof is the Malchut of Ein Sof. Thus, Kether itself possesses the quality of Malchut, but Malchut is the lowest level of the Ein Sof. So not only is it the crown 
of the king of the end of the world of emanation, but really it is the intermediate and it contains the infinite light, it contains the last level, so to speak, of the infinite light, which is the level of malchut of the infinite light. So it itself is also an expression of the attribute of malchut, of, of royalty. Because, you know, as the Rebbe said in the Maimer, tonight night is Yudshvat, tonight is the yard site of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, and the day that the Rebbe became Rebbe, he assumed the leadership. And in the first Hasidic discourse, which, um, which he said on the 10th of Shrat, actually the night, which would be the equivalent of tomorrow night, um, assuming the leadership, so he explains that in every level, there's a malchut in every level. Malchut is, represents the shechina, the revelation. So in every level, the lowest, the end of that level, the revelation of, of that level, the communication of that level, the level of speech, the level, that's called the malchus, that's called the shechina. So in comparison to the infinite light, there's the level of shechina, which is the attribute of royalty within the infinite light that precedes the symptom. In the world of emanation, Malchut is the very end of the world of emanation. And Keter is the crown. That's above the head, above wisdom, divine wisdom, supernal wisdom. But Keter, in relation to the higher world, in relation to the infinite light before the Tzimtzum, Keter, which is a reflection of the infinite, is, is really the level of Malchut, the lowest level of the infinite light. So that itself is, is the level of Malchut, of a higher world, the level of revelation, of Shechina, of a higher, of, not of a higher world, of Hashem himself, of Hashem's infinite light, so to speak. Whatever that means on that level. Obviously, it's talking a whole, a whole, whole entirely different uh, meaning. We talk about Malchus of the infinite light before the Tzimtzum, Versus when we talk about Malchus, the end of the world of emanation. I'm not talking about a world beyond the world of emanation. There are no worlds. So you're talking about within the infinite light before the Tzimtzum. But within the infinite light is also Malchut. It's the end, the lowest level. Dr. Rebbe says elsewhere, it's like Hashem speaking to himself. It's speech, but like someone speaking to himself. <laughs> When Hashem, you know, you know um, imagine all the worlds and for Himself, but whatever it is, that is the end of the lowest level of the speech and words and communication within the infinite light, within Hashem Himself, within Hashem's infinite self. That becomes the keter. That becomes the crown of the world of, em- of the world of emanation. So. This Keter is also a reflection of royalty, of a higher level of royalty, the level of royalty within the infinite light itself. Consequently, Malchut of Atzilu, too, is called Keter. When the spheroid are considered in ascending order. So you have two ways. You have two ways of looking. You have what we call the straight light. You have the reflective light, the bouncing light. You throw a ball, the ball bounces back. There's an echo. 
the bouncing light, which explains why the lower levels on earth, like a dead sea, the lowest level on earth, is hotter than the higher elevated levels on earth. Logically, you would think the higher places should be warmer, closer to the sun. <laughs> why are the lower places hotter? They're further away from the sun. The answer is because the heat comes from the bouncing light. It's the light that bounces off. That's why space is black, it's dark. Why is space dark? <laughs> we can see light and they can see light. There's no light in space. It's the light that bounces back. It's the heat that bounces back. That's what gives us heat. So the closer you are to the end, you get the much more, you get light and you get much more intense light. You get heat. From that point of view, from the point of bouncing back, the end actually becomes the source, becomes the beginning. And that, that's the force that bounces back. It reflects back. So in that sense, kes, malchus is the end, but that becomes the beginning. <laughs> that's the force. When, when you hit the end, that's when it comes right back in full force. So when you reach the end, that point becomes the beginning of the bounce. Bounces back. So the malchus becomes the keter, becomes the crown, becomes the source. From this perspective, looking upward, malchus, the lowest sephira, is termed keser in relation to the higher sphera. This is so because malchus is the primary receptor for the downflow of Kesar, which then illuminates the highest sphere by means of or Kosa, reflected light, like a beam of light that travels earthward through space, strikes the surface, and rebounds with renewed intensity. The above concerns the ability of Malkus <coughs> to manifest the power of Ainsof in creating Yesh from Ayin, and to enable created beings to perceive themselves as, in, as entities distinct from their creator, for this very reason, however, this creative ability cannot be considered a revelatory aspect of the Ein Sof light. Rather, it demonstrates its capacity to conceal. The Alter Rebbe, therefore, now goes on to discuss ways in which Malchut serves to reveal this light. Souls, for example, though divine, descend nevertheless within the limitations of created beings. By virtue of its revelatory aspect, Malchut is called Alma de Italia, the manifest world. But through the sphere of Malchut, the Ein Sof light is revealed <coughs> within the world. We learned last week that Malchut, he referred to Malchut as the revelation, revelation of Hashem, the revelation of Godliness, the revelation of Hashem's creative ability. So even though Malchut at the end, and Malchut is about concealing, but it's not just about concealing, it also reveals. You know, usually we refer to Malchut as the cover-up, as compartmentalization and the differentiation and the words and letters that differentiate and limit the divine energy. But he said that really it's the ultimate revelation. It's the ultimate revelation of Hashem's creative ability, of the essence, to create something from nothing. So Malchut is not just a cover-up, a concealment. Malchut actually is also the ultimate revelation of Hashem and the very essence of Hashem.
So, so that explains why the souls, the souls of the Jewish people, which the Jewish people are called B'nai Melachim, princes, the children of kings, because our souls come from the divine attribute of the divine royalty. So that's why the Jewish souls are revelations of godliness. Yes, they are souls that are created and clothed in a physical flesh and blood and a body and limited. But on the other hand, they are lights. The Jewish souls are lights. Compared to the stars, we light up the darkness where every Jewish soul is a revelation of godliness, a breath of fresh air, a revelation of godliness in this darkness that illuminates this darkness. And that's why it's called a birth. It's a revelation. A birth is a revelation. A birth is an expression of something infinite. The ability to give birth, the ability to create something that will outlive you and outlast you and something that's eternal. Um, this is a revelation. So yes, Malchus is the source of all created beings, including the souls that are created. But it's not just a concealment, it's actually a revelation. It's a birth, a revelation of God, an opening. That's the definition of birth. There's an opening, opening of the womb and a revelation. A revelation of Godliness. This is especially so since through Malchut, the creation of souls takes place, enabling them to be yes and separate entities in the world of Ria. And notwithstanding their becoming a yesh, they will <coughs> retain their aspect of Godliness. While yet in Atzilut, souls have no sense of being a yesh, since they are entirely nullified to godliness. Upon entering the world of Bria, however, they perceive themselves as being distinct and substantive creatures. Notwithstanding this, they remain godly and godly entities and draw down godliness within the worlds. These derivation of souls from Malchut is termed Leida, birth, a process that requires the intervention of a higher power emanating from the Ein Sof, like the splitting of the Red Sea, which, as stated in the Zohar, depended on Atik. Atik, related to Ne'etach, implying removal, and separation from the created world is the inner i.e. higher level of Keter, whose outer, i.e. the lower level, is termed Arich. Atik is the final degree of the Ensof. Arich is the source and root of emanated beings. The Kabbalah te- teaches that <coughs> the birth of souls is comparable to the steep splitting of the Red Sea, and like it requires the power of the Ensof as found in Atik. The Alter Rebbe now explains that the infinite power is needed not only for the birth of the souls, but for their gestation as well. So all of creation is really, it's a godly act. All of creation, creating something from nothing is a purely divine 
miraculous act. But creation, by definition, the world, by definition, is called olam. comes from the word helem. Godliness is hidden and concealed. You don't see, you don't sense. Completely hidden and concealed. It blocks, it hides. But then you have a miracle, a splitting of the sea, which is not natural. Where the, what's formerly hidden, submerged underwater, now suddenly becomes overt, obvious, <coughs> self-evident, transparent, tangible. Where godliness becomes tangible. That's a miracle. That comes as a result, the greatest miracle in the Torah, that comes as a result of a divine revelation. The splitting of the sea was a result of a divine, divine a very high level. As we just, uh, just read today, today's Torah portion, that's what we're reading, by divine providence. Parshat B'Shalach, that there was an eastern wind. Ruach Kadim. Ruach Kadim means a revelation that comes from Hashem, who's Kadim, who's first, who precedes everything, who is the ultimate reality. So there was a revelation of godliness that caused the splitting of the sea, that, the, that, that the, what's formerly hidden should be completely revealed and overt. And the same is with the birth of the Jewish soul. The birth of the Jewish soul, it's a birth. You know, the splitting of the sea was the climax of the exodus from Egypt, which was the birth of the Jewish people. It was giving birth, bringing into this world a new people, a different type of people, not just another nation. You know, God didn't need another seat in the UN. It's a different, a different type of nation, a godly nation, a holy nation. Different type of, uh, you know, different type of and um, so this was this comes about through this what we call a birth meaning an opening an opening from within a revelation of something that's within and is revealed so yes the child is born and the child is independent and the child is overt but the child is still connected to its parents in a very deep way so too the souls of the Jewish people were born into this world, into the body, flesh and blood. But they still remain very deeply attached and connected to the source. So that's why it's not just a creation, it's a birth. Yes, there's a separation. You cut the umbilical cord, there is a separation. And the child is independent, but the child is very much connected. Is that a new soul in every child that didn't exist before? Whether the soul is reincarnated? No, we're all, most of us, 99.9% of us are all reincarnated from earlier. But it doesn't matter. It's still, the soul, originally the soul is was, was born. The souls were not created, the souls were born. Born represents a revelation or intrinsically connected. And that's why the, uh, the child first gestates in the mother's womb for nine months. A malchus is also called, it's the mother's womb. It's called the ima, the mother, the lower mother. That's the womb. 
in which the soul has to go through a, a nine-month gestation period. So it's not just creation. It's not just something external, speech and something external. It comes from within. It's, 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 it, and it, so nine months of gestation within the world, in the mother's womb. There's no separation there. It's completely one with the mother. It eats what the mother eats, and it's nourished by through the mother. It's one with the mother. So the, every, so the soul first originates in the, the world of divine emanation. It's completely inseparable and one with Hashem. It has to go through this nine-month gestation period. And then the womb opens and the child emerges. It's independent as a separate being, but still... Because the child went through that gestation period and the child is part, very much part and parcel of the parents. So even when the child is separate, the child remains connected. Connected at the hip, connected, so deeply connected. So therefore the souls are like revelations, the revelations of godliness, the purpose of the soul. The soul was born, not just created. Because the soul is essentially an entity, not an entity, the soul is essentially a part of the world of emanation, the divine world of emanation. And then, then it was born and separated. But retaining that deep, deep core connection. And that's why our main mission in life is to bring light, godly light, godliness, into this darkness, to reveal Hashem, to reveal Godliness. And how do we reveal Godliness? By connecting and by seeing that connection when no one else sees that connection. Everyone looks at this world, all religions look at this world and say, look, this world is so dark. This world is so ridiculous, absurd. Might as well quit while you're behind. And it's just one big maya, one big illusion. If you have any doubt, just listen to the politicians and <laughs> some fantasy delusional world that they live in. Shockingly, but... So you look at this world, the ego, the arrogance, the, 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 the distortions, the superficiality, the lies, the crooked thinking, the, the, the superficial thinking, the foolishness. And you, can, and you come completely disillusioned. <clears throat> the Jew looks at the same reality as we're learning in this letter. And, and the Jew is in awe. The Jew says, wait, you don't get it? Where does this come from? Where does this absurdity come from? Where does ego come from? Do you realize how godly it is? Do you realize how this is the ultimate revelation, the ultimate expression of the very core and essence of Hashem? It's the ultimate revelation of something that has no beginning, something that's so completely inexplicable, completely astonishing, something that doesn't exist, not only in this world, doesn't even exist in the higher realms, even in the infinite light, which is a light, which is completely dependent and has a source. The idea that there's no source and there's no reason and there's no origin. Where does, it, where does it even come from? How is it even possible? It can only come from the very essence of Hashem. 
So we see connections everywhere. <laughs> Where everyone else, everything appears to be on the surface to be completely disconnected. The truth sees connections everywhere. We see godliness in everything. We're breathing. What a miracle. We don't take anything for granted. On Shabbat, you take a walk. It's a mitzvah. You take a nap. It's a mitzvah, especially when the rabbi speaks. <laughs> it's a bigger mitzvah. <laughs> whatever you do, every natural activity, whatever you do, suddenly you, realize, you make connections. You realize that nature is the greatest miracle. It's not a cover-up. The cover-up itself is the greatest revelation. Be- that's the idea of birth. A Jewish soul is not just a, a creature like any other creature. It's not just another creature that Hashem created with His speech. Angels were created through Hashem's speech, but a, a Jew was born like a birth. That's what the Torah says, you're my children. Not in the physical sense, but in the sense that you are really come from the world of divine and the world of emanation. You're inseparable. You're completely one. Because you're rooted in Malchus and the divine and the divine womb, so to speak. And by the soul gestating for nine months, and then there's the opening and the revelation. Yes, the separation, but a child is connected and sees connections everywhere. In the smallest thing, the seemingly insignificant thing, a Jew sees a connection to Hashem. In the tiniest drop, we see the whole sun is reflected in the tiniest drop, just like it's reflected in the whole entire ocean. In the tiniest, seemingly insignificant detail, a Jew sees Hashem. Every detail of our lives, we see Hashem. Every aspect of our life, every moment of our life, every breath we take, 24-7. So it's like that paradox. We're part of the world. We're very much flesh and blood very much down to earth, very much grounded. But on the other hand, we're connected. No one else sees connections. And to us, it's like so clear. We don't understand why no one else sees it. You don't see Hashem. We don't see. That's why a Jew says, you ask a Jew, every second word, Baruch Hashem, thank God this, and thank God that, and thank God. It's so much part of our language. We see the connections everywhere. Our health, our success, everything we have, we see Hashem. And no one knows what we're talking about. And to us it's so clear, it's so crystal clear, it's so obvious. It's so That's what distinguishes. The Jew is not created, the Jew is born. That's the significance of the birth of the soul. This is a revelation. Like the splitting of the sea, it's a revelation. It's transforming the concealment into a, a revelation. Also, the whole growth of the soul throughout the seven months from the union of Shmini as a red until the birth of the seventh day of Pesach. It is taught in Kabbalah that the union that conceives souls takes place on Shmini as a red, while the birth of souls takes place on the seventh day of Pesach at the time of the crossing of the Red Sea. So that's why we dance, you know, in, in uh, Shmini Atzeret in Israel, that's their Simchas Torah, you know. We have Simchas Torah the next day. But we dance on Simchas Torah and Shmini Atzeret. It's such a joyful day. Because, and our customers even here, we dance on Shmini Atzeret as well. 
because the high holiday is a time that we recreate the marriage, the relationship between the Jewish people and Hashem. And it all reaches a climax with Simchas Torah. Because the marriage, what's the climax of the marriage? What's the cli- it begins with the courting and the dating and then the, pro- the proposition and then the acceptance of the proposition and then the chuppah and then, and then the uh, wedding celebration and the wedding feast. But what's the climax? The moment of intimacy when the husband and wife are alone. That's when the wedding really begins. That's called Simchas Torah. That's why a Jew in Simchas Torah physically dances with the Torah. You become intimate with Hashem as an intimacy every fiber of our being every bone in our body become completely one with Hashem and that gives birth to Bereshit's Barah to a brand new world when the Jew and Hashem are one we give birth so this is the conception that's why that's, that's the moment of conception and then it's a seven month later but it depends how you count it you count a little of, this, of the month of Tisha right then you have Cheshvan so that counts for a whole month. You have Cheshvan, Kislev, Tevez, Shvat, Adar, and Nisan. Till the splitting of the sea, the Shvi Shal Pesach, which is the 21st of the month of Nisan. So that's like seven months. It's not complete seven months, but it's um, a little of this month, and a little, a little in the beginning, a little at the end, and you have five complete months. So together that's seven months. So it's a quick, quick, quick birth. Um, not premature, but quick birth, seven months. And that's the birth, that's the splitting of the sea, that's the birth of the soul. That's the result of the conception, of the conceiving, as a result of the intimacy that took place in Shemini Atzeret. And then the birth of the soul, which is a revelation. The womb opens up and there's a revelation. The child is born. The, the birth of a child is the ultimate revelation because it's, 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 something, it's something infinite. The idea that we who are finite can give birth, could create something that's really infinite because the child gives birth in turn and, and it goes on and on forever and ever. Well, like a link in a chain that goes on and on forever and ever. That we're part of this eternal dance that we're part of eternity and we have the ability to convey that eternity, a link in that eternity and to convey and to pass on that eternity to be transmitted forever and ever and ever to the end of... This is a revelation of the infinite, this revelation of Godliness. And again, the Jew sees in something... <clears throat> It seems to be so ordinary, you know, okay, giving birth, having a child, I mean, that's what happens, that's what, that's what people do, that's what everyone does. And yet, when you're connected, you see in that, you see how godly it is, how infinite it is, how astonishing it is, how, how incredible, astounding, mind-boggling, that we who are finite have that ability, the God-given ability to, especially... The woman, Malchut, feminine, has that ability to, by receiving and then allowing the child to develop, to gestate and to develop in the mother's womb and then to give birth to this child. This is an astounding revelation of something greater, of something transcendent, of something infinite. 
in this world. And that's something you don't have in the upper world. You only have it in this world. So, so this is all part of that, that revelation, that godly revelation that takes place on the, se- on the seventh day of Pesach, which is the birth, the splitting of the sea and the birth, and that revelation of godliness which, as a result, was expressed in the splitting of the sea, in the miracle of the splitting of the sea, which was a consequence, a symptom of this intense revelation of godliness that took place in that day and that takes place every year in that day. Resembles the growth of Zun, the Seferit of Zah, and Malchut of Atzila that were formerly concealed in the womb of Ima Ila, Supernal Mother, in the innermost degree of Vina of Atsila. This takes place by means of the supernal aura of Ima Ila and of yet higher as far as the Ein Sof which vests itself in the Bina in order to bring about the growth of Zun through, through, throughout the nine or seven months of pregnancy. Just as Zun of Atsila is delivered from Bina of Atsila, known as Ima Ila, the supernal mother, so too do the souls gestate in Malchut, which is known as Ima Tata, the, the nether mother, since Malchut incorporates within itself the supernal or behind soul. So you have the, the uh, higher mother, you have the lower mother, the higher mother also gives birth, which is Bina, also gives birth to the emotions. But that's more like a very spiritual birth. It's when the, uh, the, the idea, the chachma, the concept, then gestates in the bina, in the comprehension, and it's fully fleshed out and fully formed, then that gives birth to full-fledged emotion. So it also has to go through that procedure. The chachma is the, is the masculine, and the, the bina is the mother, that's the higher mother, supernal bina, which gives birth to emotions, which in comparison to the intellect, it's like you need to give birth, it's like a jump, because in the world of intellect there are no emotions, the world of intellect is beyond emotion, it's understanding the idea, it's, 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 it's very, it's all of, takes place within yourself very deep inside of yourself. Emotions in relation to those outside of you, to relate to something outside of you, to love and to fear and to have compassion, to feel compassion. This is, in comparison to the intellect, these are like the children that the intellect gives birth to the, to the child, which is like a leap. So it has to go through this whole process of the masculine giving to the feminine and then allowing it to gestate and allowing it to develop in, in the mother's womb. And then there's the opening and there's the birth, and that gives birth to the emotions. And it also splits, the water splits before the baby. Right, right. So it gives birth to, to the emotions. And then, in the emotions, then you have the emotions, which are the masculine, and then malchus, which is the feminine, that's the lower mother. And 
when you combine those two and then it allows to gestate within the lower mother in the womb, so to speak, of the divine attribute of royalty, then that gives birth to the souls, that gives birth to separate beings, to the souls, who are separate entities, spiritual entities with separate entities, but nevertheless, they are children and princes and remain connected. And their whole purpose is to reveal godliness in this physical, material world, to be lights. The same is true of the creation of the souls and angels in the world of Berea. They too result from the supernal aura of the Ein Sof that are drawn down into Mahav Avetzila. Alter Rebbe now goes on to state that these supernal aura of the Ein Sof that descend into Malchut of Azila not only make possible the birth and gestation, but are also responsible for the actual conception. Also the very essence and root of the seminal drop which Malchut receives, and through which she is impregnated by Zaire and can derive from the Mochen of Abba and Ima, literally the father and mother, i.e. Kokla and Bina, respectively. And with every conjunction of Kokman and Bina, which is intended to bring about a birth, there issues forth the Abba and Ima, the seminal drop, from Arak Anfin and Atik Yomen, and from even higher up to the Ein Sof. Everything is concealed, though, in the Mochen, until the Nukva gives birth to, i.e., until Malchut reveals the soul and the angels and the Hechalot for the world of Ria. When you say... Zivug, when you say that there's been a, uh, a coupling together, intimacy between the masculine and the feminine, that's in order to reveal a new light, a deeper light, to give birth to something new. There is the way Hashem creates the world, the way Hashem emanates from Himself, and that's expected light. There's nothing new. But whenever you want to draw down something new, like giving birth, you're drawing down something new. So you need a new infusion of energy. So it comes from a very, very deep place. So the infusion of the zivug, the coupling and the infusion of the coming, and the coming together of the masculine and the feminine which draws down from a very deep place. This, this, the, the semen, the seed, draws down from a very deep place, the deepest place within, within you to reveal something new, to create something new. So, so see, even the, the insemination, even the seed is a revelation of something, of the infinite. It's bringing something, introducing something new into the, into the world. And then that draws down from the infinite light that allows for the gestation and then the birth itself. The birth itself is the ultimate revelation and the ultimate drawing down of the infinite light. So, so everything is concealed, he says, until the actual moment of birth, when the actual souls and angels are created. Hence, by means of the de- gestation and birth, there is truly a revelation of the infinite Ein Sof light. Not only is the infinite power of Ein Sof drawn down through Malchut to bring about yet, in addition, the Ein Sof light is actually revealed by means of the de- gestation and birth of souls. By virtue of this role, Malchut is termed Alma de Itgalia 
in addition to its role in drawing down the power of godliness in a concealed manner within creation. A lot of Kabbalah today. <laughs> we don't, we seem to live our lives, we're not in unison with these souls. What do you mean, we are these souls? No, but we don't live, these souls is a perfect creation of God, and we don't, we don't live that way. You're, say, you're saying we're not in touch with our soul. Yeah, but I don't know what I'm saying. What's the soul doing during this lifetime of pleasure and joy and everything? Soul is crying. Huh? <laughs> the soul is crying. <laughs> but we don't hear it. Soul is in, uh, soul is in pain. Soul is in anguish. Um, actually, that would explain why those moments when you do feel tremendously inspired when you're praying and suddenly you're inspired when you're studying Torah and your soul is on fire when you're doing a mitzvah and you're on fire when you do an act of goodness and kindness and tzedakah and chesed you know that explains why when you do something selfless and you do something good you feel like a million dollars because your soul is coming to life your soul feels at home your soul, you walk into shul, your soul feels at home. Sounds like our soul is our, is our what's the word? conscience. Absolutely. Exactly. You walk into shul, you feel at home. You join a Hasidic Fabrengen. Let me remind you, tomorrow we're going to have a grand Fabrengen in honor of Yud Shvat. The, Rebbe's, uh, the previous Rebbe's Yarsa, the day the Rebbe became Rebbe. 7.15 will be Meyer, 7.30 Fabrengen and dinner. Sponsored by Leibu Levi. So... When you come to Fabringen, you come alive. When, you, when you, you're davening, you feel at home. You're home. You're studying Torah, you're at home. You're in the royal palace. Including the Tanya class. Absolutely. And that's why when you study Tanya, you really feel at home. You, you, the crown jewels of the Torah doesn't get more, more... You're in the palace, in the royal palace, in the royal bedroom. And that explains why a Jew gets excited in Simchas Torah. Which sane, rational person? You're jumping up and down with the Torah. You're not making any money. You're not, you're not in Disney World. You're jumping up and down with the Torah. The Torah tells you don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other and 365 restrictions and, and <laughs> if you do this, you're going to get stoned. If you do this, you're going to... And here you're dancing and jumping up and down. Can't be the little, the little uh, herring or the piece of cake. I mean, what, what are you getting? <laughs> Even the vodka. You, you know, if you go in the, around the corner in the Second Avenue bar, I'm sure the vodka is much better. What, I mean, it, can, it has to be. Why? It doesn't make sense. But that's our neshama speaking. It's our neshama talking. That is who we are. We just forget. We're forgetful. We have Alzheimer's. We forget. We get. We, we get, we get uh, distracted. Our egos, we get distracted, we get, we get carried away, we forget. But the moment, the moment you have an opportunity to connect, you come alive, you feel energized, you feel rejuvenated. So the soul is there, and the soul has a life of its own. Don't think for a moment that the superficial life that we claim as our own is our real life. It's our most superficial self. Many times foolish self. This foolish persona that we create and we think that this is me. 
Nothing could be further than the truth. It's not who you are. You're deluding yourself into thinking that this is who you are. You're not fooling anyone. It's not who you are. To scratch a little, you don't even have to go far, just a little, a little beneath the surface, a whole different person, a whole different person, a whole different reality. It's a living, breathing reality. The neshama is a living, breathing reality. That's the true reality. That's our true reality. As much as we try to cover it up, it doesn't help us. That's why Jews are so guilt-ridden. Because you can't cover it up. You can try, but it doesn't get you too far. You know, something eats away at you. You're agitated. You're angry. And you act out. You may even do outrageous things. Because you don't feel comfortable. That's why you don't feel comfortable in your own skin. There's no one on earth like Jews in that way who don't feel comfortable in their own skin. When was the last time you met a self-hating Irishman? Self-hating Italian? Only Jews. They feel so uncomfortable in their own skin that they have to demonstrate to the whole world that they're more anti-Semitic than the worst anti-Semitic. And say the most outrageous things against the Jewish people, against their own brothers and sisters. As the Jewish ambassador just spoken today or yesterday, it's outrageous blood libels. This is this will make Hitler proud. The type of lies and blood libels against the Jewish people and, uh, coming from a Jew, so to speak, an Orthodox Jew. Which ambassador? Doesn't matter. To Israel. So this is this is. Only someone who's so uncomfortable in his own skin, who has to go out of his way, bend over backwards to hang out with the wrong crowd, and to show the whole world that we can be more true-hating than the rest of the world, and we can attack and accuse and uh, and besmirch and the Jew more than anyone else. But this is uniquely Jewish. So it's all that Jewish soul. The Jewish soul is so alive. It has a life of its own. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> as much as we try to dry, drown it out, it's healthness. It doesn't work. It doesn't, there's nothing we can do. And on the contrary, deep down it just becomes more intense. It becomes stronger and stronger. That's why you have this phenomenon of hundreds of thousands of young Jews who due to no fault of their own have been cut off from anything Jewish for three generations and they've found their come back home they've found their Judaism with a vengeance and where did this come from? you were cut off for three generations you were intermarried you were cut off you had no idea no clue even despised it even hated it you were taught to, to suspect it and to run away from it and and yet, you've come back with a vengeance. Where did that come from? That just tells us the Jewish soul has a life of its own. It's a living, breathing reality that's so plugged in and so connected. It's so there. It's so easy to get in touch with. 
It's just right there. Right here, right in front of us. And there's nothing that would make us happy. There's nothing that would make us whole and complete. But there's only one thing you need to do. You've got to get your ego out of the way. <laughs> that, that's, that's the spoiler. That spoils everything. All it takes is to put one little finger in front of your eyes and you block out the whole world. This beautiful world is right in front of you. Suddenly you become blind, deaf, and dumb. And the world becomes a very dark place very quickly. Sounds like Hashem didn't create the ego. We, we created the ego. Well, Hashem did create the ego, but ego could be a very powerful tool. But when you take ego and face value, then it just creates darkness. But the good news is, it's just as easy as it is to block out the whole world, it's easy to remove that finger. You just have to remove that finger. And in one instant, everything is revealed to you. It's all clear. It's right there. Right in front of you. You don't have to go far. You don't have to go anywhere. Just remove, remove the blinder. That's up to us. That's where our freedom of choice comes in. That's how Hashem waits for us. That we have to do. That He's not going to do for us. He could. But He's waiting for us. You know, yes, He could split the Hudson. He could split the East River for us. I'm sure that would be very dramatic. But now He's waiting for us to remove the blind. That's what he did with the ten plagues in Egypt. It wasn't just to beat them into submission. could have fast-forwarded and started with the tenth and last plague. It was to educate, to reveal, to remove the blinders. For then and forever. He made a one-time demonstration. He says, am I going to do this every, every year? I'm just going to do this one time. Pay attention. Learn the lesson. Get the message. And now I want you to remove your own blinders. It's so much more meaningful and more permanent, more everlasting if we do it and we choose to do it on our own. And with everything that we know today in science and physics, it's so easy to remove the blinders and to see the godly and the miraculous and the astonishing and astounding reality we call nature existence and to see Hashem. So the neshama is the neshama, we're wearing the neshama in our sleeves. The neshama is so accessible today. That's why society has to get louder and louder. The music has to get louder and louder. People have to completely drug themselves out, numb themselves out. 500 channels and nothing to watch. Because if you stop for one moment, if you were silent just for one moment, you couldn't help but sense godliness, sense the truth. It's so self-evident, it's so obvious, it's so tangible, it's right in front of our eyes it's an effort to 
to wear those blinders today. You really have to make a big, 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 giant effort to put on those blinders and to pretend that there's nothing godly or miraculous and astonishing about all of this. You really have to work very hard. <laughs> it takes an inordinate amount of energy to maintain this distortion. Just stop working so hard. <laughs> Just put, remove your finger and it's right there. Because the Rebbe says, Moshiach is ready to come. It's right here. It's right here. You just have to open your eyes. Remove the blind. It's at our doorstep. Ready to open the door. The Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, is ready to walk through the door. Ready. Everything is ready. Mashiach is ready to walk through the door. We just have to lift up that pinky. That's all, that's all that's being asked of us. A little, a little sincerity, a little effort, a little sacrifice. Lift up a pink. So that's all we have to do at this point. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.